that in itself is a part of representation of religion in fantasy and, and in fiction, that people have different levels of behavior and practice. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. You raise walls, I destroy them. Let's see who prevails. Just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Allow my sword to join you in the fight against evil. The world needs us to chase dreams. We have to dedicate ourselves each and every single day to this fight because I can't do it alone. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. Gabobot Family Values with Shannon Chakraborty. I'm Elizabeth. I'm Paul. And today we're here with Shannon Chakraborty. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. So Kingdom of Copper, which is now out, it's your second novel in the Devabod trilogy, and we're here to dissect the ins and outs of the book and how it came to be and what you got out on the other side. So let's launch right in. <laughs> First novels you can take forever to do because oh, no yes. one's really got time pressure. <laughs> so what was it like writing to a deadline for a second novel? It was very, very hard. Um, it was easily the most challenging part of producing the second book. I mean, when I wrote the first book, I wasn't even intending to write a book. It was just this personal, weird project that meandered for nearly a decade. And then that turned around and they were like, OK, <laughs> you have eight, 18 months to turn around a new book. So it was very difficult. Um, and I think mostly it was difficult. One, the time crunch and just trying to balance of, wow, suddenly I have a job I was not expecting to have. And it's full time and I have a small child. But it was also letting myself follow the plot as it kind of emerged before me rather than get hung up on, well, three years ago, this was what I wanted to do in the second book. It took me a long time to sort of let loose and trust my storyteller instincts rather than what past Shannon had said. Interesting. So did you have the whole series planned out or like a a shape of it in your mind before you started the first book? No, the first book started off as just this weird little world building project I was working on. Um, I wanted to kind of make this sort of historical fan fiction world that pulled from a lot of the medieval Islamic world. It was what I had studied in college. And I wrote short stories that pulled in history and magic. And it was really only after I'd been doing that for a couple of years, I started shaping it as a plot. That being said, once I started shaping it as a plot, the characters and the line of the three books came together very quickly in my head. And as much as a lot of scenes change, themes change, the way the characters interacted with each other in the second book from how I originally had imagined it, it still ends on the exact same note um, and hits several of the same uh, plot beats. And I believe the third book is going to roughly do so, although there might be some more major changes than I had anticipated. Cool. So this novel, except for a slight bit at the beginning, takes place five years 
after the first novel and the characters have changed and gone in some very unexpected places so how do you manage writing a time jump that we don't really even see in the novel and build a character arc that follows naturally from that unseen time jump rather than just jumping off the events of the last time which left off on a pretty cataclysmic note <laughs> You know, it was just that I I actually discussed with my editor and my agent about how to format that. And that's why we decided to set this prologue sort of right after within the following months of the events of City of Brass, sort of set the stage, remind the readers of what's going on and also use it as a launching point. I can spoil things here, right? Yes, we're going to get spoily very quickly, I think. Gotcha. Okay. So for example, you know, we, we know Ali has been exiled to Amgazira. He's supposed to die. So I f- have this frame story of he gets there and he meets the people he's going to take shelter with. And we see a hint of the merit abilities that are going to allow him to build up their irrigation methods. So when we jump off five years later, I felt like it would more naturally take place. Ah, the reader knows this is where he was headed. And now we see him five years later. And I wanted to do the same with not her and with Dara, <laughs> which is my surprise point of view, because I really, I, you know, it wasn't as interesting for me to show the exact events after the book. I wanted to see these characters developed, matured, trained in their respective fields. I wanted to see them have slightly mastered the very difficult circumstances they were left in at the end of the City of Brass and then how they would deal with new challenges in the second book. But only slightly mastered. <laughs> <laughs> Just to jump ahead in a similar way, do you expect that there will be a similar time jump for the third book? No, I'm fairly certain there won't be. I mean, I hope so. I'm pretty far in my draft, and that would be a major change. Right. I don't think we're going to spoil the very, very end of this book. Yeah, that too much. But, but, the, but the very ending is like, oh, crap. And I thought about it like, oh, you foreshadowed this earlier when you mentioned something about Married abilities, like, okay, that makes sense. That's why that happened. Cool. I really, really appreciate how you buried that seed before, that little bit of world building, and then just pull it out at the end is like, surprise! Oh, thank you. I was trying to do lots of foreshadowing, even about a certain place that's on Nahru's mind and how things might end up there, so... For something that you didn't sit down and, like, rigorously plan, it's impressively complicated (laughs) and just fits together so well. Oh, thank you. (laughs) It's interesting because a lot of even for working on book two was sort of getting out of my own head and dealing with imposter syndrome because I I felt like, who am I to write a book? You know, it was not really in the cards. I wanted to be a writer. I, you know, I, I wanted it. It just didn't seem like something that was a feasible dream for someone like me and that it would ever happen. So with the second book and I had that quick turnaround, I was sitting down at the same time. It's like, wait, how do I write a book? I never took a class on this. So thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad it seemed to come together well. I, I certainly thought so. Going back to going back to the evolution of magic and powers, you know, not, not only does Ali show up with these unexpected married abilities, but Nari's abilities grow rather exponentially in the course of this novel. So how, so do I discuss like how, and, and not in the ways I would have thought I I would have I would necessarily thought so we're going to talk about the uh the magical evolution of Nari we got we can talk about the characterizations in a bit but I was curious about the the magical evolutions that of that she undergoes as far as becoming a real power within the city well with Nari 
I really wanted to go two different ways because we have she belongs to this family of magical healers. And I wanted to dig into that trope a little bit and show when it comes to her healing magic, she becomes a good a good doctor in a way more because of practice and hard work than anything. You know, this natural gift I I, I w- had worked in healthcare myself and it was very important for me to show that, you know, it's not somebody's not touching her and ah, suddenly you have these skills. It's more she's practicing that incantation a dozen times um, before she even thinks to try it. So for her magical skills, sorry, for her healing skills, I wanted to show this sort of slow, gritty evolution. But I also, um, if delving into the world of the city, Nahri's ancestors were the ones who built it. They they brought up this island and built this city from this married haunted lake. And it's part of them and it's part you know her her blood runs in this city and i wanted to show as she becomes more at home with that legacy and essentially embraces her heritage in a way she was very reluctant to do so in the first book she finds herself pulling more on this just inherent magic in the city it responds to her it's a creation from her own blood and the more she works with that, the better she gets and the more confident and until it gets to a certain scene where she's almost desperate and she's not thinking just for herself. She's thinking she wants to save her people, to save her city. And at that point, she's really able to harness much of it. Indeed, and you do large as well, particularly like how you have the hospital that she's restoring respond to her. And I think it's Ali who knows she had like the mosaics come alive when she's walking by. So it's like almost like the city loves her in a way. Yes, and it's interesting because I I really wanted to do a scene like that. I'm a big history buff. I think that's apparent in the fact that I of what I write. But I had always liked the idea of going into sort of these ruined buildings. You see the paint fragments, um, cracked statues. And when you do recreation, sometimes people will do digital ones and have everything rushed back. And that was always an image that really stuck in my mind. And I wanted to do something like that for Nahri. She, she's connected to this place so that when she walks in, you see all of this happen. But for her, such a powerful character too, though, she spends a lot of time feeling frustrated and helpless, boxed in by her in-laws and, and the politics around her situation. How did you go about balancing that juxtaposition? When I wrote Nahri, I wanted to have her feel real, which is, of course, something authors always say. But I wanted to really delve into the character of who this woman would be, the type of person who would survive an incredibly challenging childhood, largely on her own, being taken to this magical city, losing the one person she trusted and and started to care for and surviving all that. I think a lot of times, you know, we we think of, you know, heroes and and great politicians and, you know, incredibly intelligent statesmen or, or the type of person who would, you know, bring a hospital back or do all these great things. And they seem like larger than life characters. And I don't think that's true. I think if you talk to these people, they're they're human and you have doubts. I mean, I forget who it was. You know, is Neil Gaiman the one who has that anecdote about imposter syndrome? It was either him or another great writer. And I just don't think anybody, even the greatest of us, would lose that constant feeling of, am I doing the right thing? I have to put on a brave face. I have to stand up and and just say the right thing, not show any fear. But inside, you must just be cringing of all this responsibility, of all this doubt. And I really wanted to show with Nahari that she doesn't lose that. I think she's a greater character from being able to move past it and to 
hold it hold it together when she needs to but i very much wanted to show that the circumstances she's in could shatter a person and i didn't want it to, her to just float through them without feeling any of this i certainly found her very relatable <laughs> and it, she definitely doesn't float through it because there is a character who dies and and nari takes it really badly yes yes that was the hardest chapter to write and i i i know what part you're talking about and i cried every time i edited it actually that was a dagger to the heart <laughs> oh, <sorry. no. laughs> that was a very difficult chapter to write for a lot of personal reasons a lot of just even political reasons of wondering if if i was going about it the right way that was that was uh, a tough one so speaking of politics the politics of the city and revolution and tyranny so what were the what are the kind of things you were thinking as you were trying to balance a a tyrannical monarchy and wellsprings of revolution from without and within, not to mention uh, Ali, who goes from bumbling in the first novel to kind of getting himself really into the thick of things in this novel in a different way. You know, I wanted to work with a lot of different things for this trilogy, but one of the things I really wanted to pull in was the price that people are willing to pay for so-called stability. This is something very relevant to our world where, you know, leaders are able to grab a great deal of authority by saying, this is what's best for you. This is what's going to save you. It's going to keep you safe from those terrible people over there who mean you violence. And of course, those terrible people over there often don't have a voice in this and are often crushed by this. But in order to hold a system like this together, it requires the majority of people to tacitly support it, to turn the other way. Um, and I really wanted to examine the ways that works in this city that I invented, that we have Ghassan, who is a tyrant. I mean, I wanted him to be, you know, to not necessarily be this exact black and white character where he's this evil person doing all of these evil things. I think he truly thinks this is necessary for his city this is necessary for his people it's the idea that if you know you need to crush them rather than have them rise up if they rise up everything will fall apart not just for you but for them so i wanted to see how that would work you know and he has one son who's very charming he's a diplomat you know in any ways you know he should be the hero but he's starting to buy into this and he's a you know he's a good person he's got a good heart and even though you you see him tell people that he loves davis that he loves that's the group that's one of the groups that's being persecuted just know this is better for you we have to we have to do this and then you have another character um ali who comes to have the opposite feeling to say to have an have it as an understatement but i really wanted to delve into that about what it would mean for someone very young to realize that their family and their people are essentially the agents of oppression um coming to terms with that what do you do with that how do you you know break apart from people who love you from this history and culture that has always told you that you were right what do you do in the circumstances of the novel when it's far more complicated because your people aren't necessarily just persecuting this poor, innocent group. They're persecuting this group, the, the, the Devas, that they originally came here to save another group from. So I really just wanted to kind of examine the ways in which um, – Violence and oppression is really rooted in in society and the way it continues and the way most people kind of go along with it. 
Yes, yes, thank you. I mean, the, the whole balance of order versus freedom is, is something that you're exploring and the consequences of leaning too far towards order at the expense of freedom and what people will do to, they can do better or they, they just want their freedom. And it's explosive and violent and confrontational. And, and in this novel, not too much of a, let's say, rather cataclysmic for the city and, and for all the characters. Cataclysmic is a good word. <laughs> yes. Well, you censored to the censored, so yeah. <laughs> I did so much, I don't even know what that refers to. <laughs> so, but no, I, and I wanted to show that because even towards the end, without getting too much into spoilers, I think two of our main characters are kind of starting to get it and have made strides in, in maybe breaking the wheel a bit and, and, and taking a path towards something different. And unfortunately, they they can't in time, and it's been caught up because they're not the only ones who are trying to fix things. And people come in with a very different idea of fixing things, and unfortunately, it's a tragic one. I also appreciated the way it played out in a personal way, that Nari comes to realise that this person who is close to her is really being inculcated in a way of thinking that is kind of really horrific to her, and that she has to come face to face for that. So was playing out that personal angle something that was important to you as well? Yes, if we're thinking about the same character, um, which I assume we are. But I really wanted to show, this, and this was actually... I'll go ahead and, and, and spoil it because anybody who reads the second book is going to understand. But I'm talking about Dara. Um, and when I wrote his character, I wanted to start with someone who I know I knew readers would fall in love with, who Nahri might fall in love with. He's he's the hero. He's that, you know, the, the swaggering, brooding um, warrior who's charismatic and handsome and seems at the first at first level to be a very good man. He had he is a legend to his people. He's done wonderful things to save his people. He you know, you see him out there with, you know, children are putting on his hat, w- women are falling all over him. And then show the way that that person who is essentially a good person could have done terrible things. Because I think we all like to think of ourselves as a good person, as the hero, that if push came to shove, we would do the right thing. The reality is not everybody makes that choice. The world is unfortunately filled with people who believe they're good and doing something for the right reasons, doing truly horrific acts. Nobody, very few people go out there and they say, I want to be a villain, so let me massacre this village. It's more (laughs) they've driven with the idea that, one, that village is full of people who are not people like them and that its destruction is necessary for the, a political goal that is far more important than the life of these people they've already dehumanized. And I really wanted to show that that doesn't just happen to people who are the villains um, in stories. It happens to people who are the heroes and who you don't want to do these things and once that's done i wanted to kind of examine can somebody come back from that um can you can you ever really redeem yourself after something like that could you if you committed this horrible act how could you even come to a place where you could recognize it was horrible and still you know maintain your sanity So when I worked with this character, I really wanted to delve into the side of what happens when somebody doesn't choose the right thing and they're kind of broken and see, you know, how that works out for the story and the people around them. 
Oh yeah, I I mean I you have Dara show up in the first book. I mean he's he's Nari's portal and entry into the story and you think yeah he's the one that's going to be by her side throughout the three novels and that just does not work out. I mean she gets married to Mutadi here and Dara is he's supposed to be dead to to quote a certain movie but <laughs> he didn't get turned into a llama but he gets but he didn't die either. <laughs> And I wanted to examine that because I I wanted the story to be about choices. And I think in a lot of different ways, that's probably not the life Dara wanted. And I think there were times that he could have lived a different life. I think, you know, this was, again, kind of spoiler, but I really wanted to look at the story that you could see in different circumstances, Ali becoming a Dara. You could see in with another 150 years of Ghassan pressing his boot upon her, you could see Nahari becoming a Maniza. That I don't think people really have this core of evil. It's driven by what happens to them and the choices they make and choices that lead them in places that they don't want to be. Even if they're made through good intentions. Exactly. That's what they say. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Very true, yes. (laughs) Okay, so I I got a slightly different question. It's more more of a general classification sort of thing. And I started thinking about this more. as I didn't think about this in the first book because I I just went with the first book as, you know, this is wonderful historical fantasy. As I was going through the second book and seeing how everyone's drawn through it and thinking about Nari's story, especially by the time what comes to the end. What do you think about this series, about this about Nari's story being a portal fantasy? I think it could be a portal fantasy. My thing is when people come to the classifications of is this epic fantasy, is this historical fantasy, is it YA, is it crossover, is it adult? I will be honest, I had none of that in my head when I was writing this. And like I said, I'm I, I'm kind of late to writing and even, you know, I've I always loved science fiction and fantasy, but I you know, I didn't really get on chats of what is this or what is this. I just read stories and enjoyed them. Um so I think in even in working with that, I I probably unconsciously took a lot of aspects i mean i always considered it historical fantasy and then people told me that was incorrect because it takes place in a secondary world i think it could be a portal fantasy i i mean i meant it to in essentially mirror a lot of traditional lore about the jinn which is that they live in this world that kind of sits unseen alongside ours so that was what i was working with which i guess in a way is a portal Right, I mean, because M. Jazeera and Devabad itself are physical in the real world, but we just can't see them. But it's like stepping over a threshold into a completely different realm. And not to mention coming coming into power, coming into a heritage, coming into a, a life that she never knew she had, but was always there. I mean, even if she kind of knew she had powers back in Cairo, I began to think, well, is this really more portal fantasy in ways? I felt conflicted, but then then we see intrusions of the real world. We see uh, a mention that she finds books in a language she doesn't know. Is that English, by the way? I had figured it would probably be French, um, that oh. she might have come upon some of the, the expedition notes or the, the books that um, Napoleon's group had put together. I wasn't quite sure about my timing. And then, of course, we wind up having slightly spoilery gunpowder and terrorism of gunpowder strike the city. It's like, okay, there's the real world intruding upon uh, Devabad in a very real and very palpable way. I got chills down my spine to see uh, terror weapons and terroristic acts being used in, 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 in the city. It's like, oh, no. Oh, no. Things went that way. Oh, no. 
Yeah, that was like I said, that was a very difficult scene to write. That was I, I rewrote that multiple times in different different ways and it never got easier. Um, but I, I, I did want to have that, that in, in many ways it felt like, you know, Nahri comes from very, very late uh, 18th century Egypt, roughly 1798 at the start of um, Napoleon's invasion. Mm-hmm. And Egypt is essentially entering the modern era and they have these modern weapons and it's a different kind of life from she goes back to the magical world that is almost a few centuries behind. It kind of has a bit more of a medieval sense that they don't really use weapons like this. They, they are their, their customs and their traditions, much of which they take from humans are a few centuries delayed. And that the way that works out in the second book and, and aspects of the third is rather tragic because here they are, they've been forcing these Shafit to come into their city. The Shafit are, are jinn with human blood and they're horribly mistreated and, but they're not allowed to, to stay in the human world. So they essentially kidnap them and force them back and, and treat them as second class citizens. But at the same time, these, many of these people are coming from a more modern era and they know about things like this. They know these weapons, they know how to use gunpowder and it's something the jinn are just entirely unprepared for. And it's in many ways, horrible, tragic justice that they end up using human weapons to fight back. Um, but that was how I wanted it to feel that they, they've, they're taken from a slightly different world definitely comes with and i did like how you kept balancing and keeping people at bay while the reader knows that nari is practically nobody except Kassan knows and the actual revelation of that to others is a shock that i i found interesting how you're folding the prejudices oh but if you touch one you'll lose all your powers and nari knows that's not the truth because she's been treating people since she was a child yes and i wanted to include that because that was another part of her character is that you know, you you have to not hurry Shafi. She has human blood. Nobody knows about it. And her tribe, the, the people that she's supposed to lead and the people that she truly comes to love, they run the gamut from despising the Shafi to thoroughly believing that they are, you know, in many ways, these soulless abominations. They're not supposed to ex- exist. Their their religion is very clear about not interacting with the humans, let alone having a child with humans. And how awful it would be that she has to hide this part of her and get on, get on with these people who she loves and she respects and hear things like this. I mean, that's, I, I don't even, I wouldn't call that a micro aggression i would call that you know like like knives to your soul constantly of of hearing a part of yourself just spoken of so poorly and the other person has no idea indeed sure there's quite a profusion of languages in the story i was wondering if that is a passion of yours alongside history uh it is although i'm much better at history than i am at languages um you know i've i studied arabic and i i it is gets increasingly bad the more years I, I stay away from it. Um, but I, I really wanted to kind of have the idea that a city like this, where one, all six of the Jin tribes have different languages, they would have sort of a Creole to speak with each other. All of the humans they were dragging from all of, over the place would come with their own languages and how that would develop that in many ways, um, you know, that's how new languages are formed. They're you know, of the people take, you know, from this tongue and this tongue. And I really wanted to have the idea that it would be a city that had all of these different languages. And a lot of the places I was modeling, it on are like that you know i was i I had in mind 
sort of late antiquity Baghdad um, when I was thinking about Devabad and how you would have it's you know that same exact exact situation you have sort of a new group sweep into power and they're speaking Arabic but they've taken over this Persian court system so they're also speaking that you have people you know who are speaking Assyrian who are speaking Saraic who are speaking different forms of Turkish you have traders who are speaking Hindi you know you have just this huge mix of languages and I think that's the truth of many places that are like this. It also gives an extra dimension to the character's interaction, judging by what language they're using to speak to each other. Exactly. And I, I, I very much wanted to show that. I mean, if you're multilingual, you have, you know, you speak this to your family, you speak this out on the street, you speak this to your teacher. And in it, that's a lot of there's a lot of politics in there. I mean, I have scenes in this book where, you know, characters very pointedly switch to another tongue so that others can't understand. There's a there's a part in City of Brass that, that I wanted to write that we have Ali, who is the prince, you know, he's he's essentially comes from the family of leaders and he has never learned the language of the devas and it's you know it was originally their city they make up a huge portion of the population but he just never thought to learn it why would he they they should speak his language and it doesn't even have doesn't have registered that as really a thought in his mind until dara comes in and is speaking to the other devas in the room and points out you never learn the language you know why should we all switch to your language? We all speak it. Maybe maybe you should speak it. And I, I wanted to kind of examine that about how even the power of, of different languages and plays into the politics. Um, Nahri, who is terribly homesick for Egypt, pretty much all throughout all of these books, um, she is essentially warms up to Ali because he speaks it and it, it reminds her of home. And it's a, it's a huge part The the early part of their friendship is, is this familiarity in a way that she doesn't even consciously think of. You do layer into those uh, homesickness, not only with language, but also with food and cuisine and her getting treats from her homeland. So why don't you talk a little bit about the foods of Devabad and what these characters eat and how you use food for world building. I mean, I am a huge foodie historian <laughs> now again completely like not not officially or anything but i love um a lot of the old medieval cookbooks they have there are tons from the region it was just this epicenter of fine cuisine and they used to have culinary competitions um and a lot of this is preserved and you can recreate a lot of this and i try to recreate a lot of this and share it on social media so i always knew i wanted to have just as much food descriptions as I could cram into the novels. Um, but again, because that's also that's a huge part of human society and culture is what you're eating, how you're eating, how it's presented. So, yes, um, you know, everybody has the idea of comfort foods or, you know, the foods your mom used to make you or that you associate with childhood. And it brings things back. It makes, you know, it's it's warms your heart. So if somebody was trying to warm up to, you know, a, a young woman who was obviously homesick, hey, maybe see, make some stuff from her home, bring it over to her. It's it's a nice thing to do. And it also might, you know, get you get you in her good graces. So I, I you know, I really wanted to show things like that. You know, there's another scene in uh, the second book where Ali is meeting his mother for the first time in years. And it's this very tense meeting. There's a lot of politics and baggage between the two. Um, uh -huh. And, you know, but at the same time, you know, sh he she 
has this feast brought to him and it's all the foods he liked when he was a little kid and it's it's it kind of brings back and that's that's not at all meant to be manipulative or anything she's it's it's kind of a it brings it home to them that for whatever politics have driven them apart you know to this character that's still her son that's her 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 baby in many ways and you know she's as she's fighting at him to take a more political route she's like oh you're you know you're you're so skinny come you like I, you need to eat you know that i i wanted to show aspects of that <laughs> <laughs> your skin and bones eat, exactly eat. <laughs> it also amuses me too that culinary competitions are a tradition from the ages <laughs> I know. I, I love it. I When I come across things like that, it just it, it makes this human connection of like, we're all kind of the same. And, you know, we've we, we've always liked to do a lot of the same things. And the descriptions of these meals are out of the out of this world sometimes. So it must have been a very, very interesting thing to go through. Iron Chef Devabad. Exactly. And there is one thing I knew I wanted to do was to have a culinary competition in the second book. Um, you know, they're preparing for, for Navasadam, which is this meat, this fantastic, you know, centennial celebration. And they're trying to choose the cook who will plan the menus. And, you know, you have all these people bring different yeah. meals in and it's sort of a combination of regional cuisine, but with magic added. And it was probably the most fun scene I've written. It's good for the readers to know that, yes, while there are dark things that happen, there's also moments of levity like, yes, trying to choose a menu for uh, the celebration. Yes, I try to keep some humor and some lightness throughout. I mean, that's kind of my view on even writing these books is that I didn't want them to just be these, you know, grim books that crushed you. I wanted to write moments of light and kind of just show even today, you know, when things really seem like the chips are down people survive that people can get through horrible circumstances and you kind of you make a, a way to find your own happiness and to to live through things like this so i really wanted to show um you know even as these characters are crushed through certain things they don't lose their spirit and there's still aspects of life that are worth enjoying the politics also comes through the food too though because like you have things like ali doesn't drink alcohol and nari chooses not to eat meat anymore things like that Yes. And that's that's actually something I've, I wanted to show a lot, because even with that, um, you know, not her doesn't eat eat meat for her her religion, which is in many ways her new religion. She's been brought to this brought to the city and told she's not only the leaders of the devas, she's essentially a religious figurehead. And she wants really nothing to do with that in the first book. But when we get to the second book and she's embraced it, she doesn't eat that anymore. It's not even a question. That's, you know, she that's part of her identity and she doesn't do that. Um for similarly with Ali, he's, you know, he's a practicing Muslim. He doesn't drink. And I wanted to show that. And even, you know, I I will admit I wrote a little of my own background into that part because that can be a touchy subject um especially when you are interacting with people who are technically also of your faith and they do indulge um the way that you get around that or you discuss that or i don't do this um you know is that meant as a judgment for other people that's a huge part of of just politics especially for someone with as much power as he has as a vegetarian teetotaler i definitely (laughs) appreciated it yes Thank you. I, tr- I tried. I tried to have some good vegetarian dishes in there. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it originally shows the diversity of, of the characters, their beliefs and backgrounds, and enriches the world building by, sh- by showing that not everybody is exactly a monolithic culture, even when it comes down to what, the, what they will eat and why. Exactly. And it's interesting because that, that was something that came up 
constantly would people w- were always asking they they were like i thought you know they were muslims why does ali's brother mutazir drink and i i found myself surprised by ha- how many people asked me that question because i wanted to be like we don't turn to like you know we don't like like fall apart into smoke <laughs> if you drink <laughs> i mean there is a reason there's a rule against it and it's because it's a temptation that humans have been indulging in for like i gosh, probably 10,000 years. So I, I, again, like I, I, I wanted to show, I mean, this was even part of writing representation um, about Muslim characters is that people aren't a monolith. And especially, especially when you are the majority and it's, you know, you are, your people are it and it's centered. I think there is ne- less pressure in some ways to always be, I don't do this because I'm this. Well, 90% of everybody is this and some people are going are going to you know have that wine and their religious practice is going to only be you know begging for forgiveness once they have that line or going to you know prayer and and festivals just when their family asks them to do it and I think that that in itself is a part of representation of religion um in in fantasy and, and in fiction that people have different levels of of behavior and practice the, the whole idea of cafeteria catholics Yes, yes, Mutazir is definitely uh, the cafeteria Catholic of uh, Devabad. Was there anything that you wanted to include in the novels that you weren't able to in the end? There was one thing, although this is very silly, although it's, it's, I mean, it is truthfully the first thing that comes to my mind, is when I wrote these novels, you know, I wanted to play with a lot of the old folk tales and some of the tropes. And one of the things that you see show up constantly in different stories of Thousand and One Nights or Tales of the Marvelous and News of the Strange is like murderous statues, which I know sounds probably very silly. But if you see anything that is like a statue in these books, it could be made out of metal. It could be a metal sculpture. Um, it could be just this old, abandoned, ancient statue. There is a str- extremely strong chance at one point in the book it's going to come alive and try to kill someone. And sometimes it's magic. It's this it's, you know, very, very obviously, oh, it just comes to life. It's been enchanted. And a lot of times it's more like this kind of steampunk vibe. It's an automaton. And I just always thought it was this very cool trope because a lot of these stories are are come from history and they're people interacting with their own environment and if you're telling this story and it's 900 ce in baghdad and you're living someplace that has seen thousands of years of different empires and you have statues and relics and everything from everything from the babylonians to the to the more ancient persians to you know to all these different things i feel like that that in itself is a little freaky. Like if you were wandering around all these historical runes and seeing a half statue here, a face on the wall here. I mean, I like the idea that the old stories play with this and, and make it, you know, a moment of comedy and of horror. And it, I have yet to find a place where I can have a murderous statue in my books, although I have been trying and I had one in the deleted scene, but I'm still looking. I should keep my fingers crossed for the third book because that would be awesome. <laughs> I actually, it's funny because I did do a, like a pre-order campaign for people who ordered the Kingdom of Copper early and I sent them the deleted scene with the murderous statues. Cool. My question is actually kind of allied as far as magical things. I wanted to see you talk briefly about the magical creatures that we see in the novel, particularly the four-winged dragons. Oh, there's a hawk. 
that is half inspired by just dragons. I mean, are they dragons show up in, in in the regional tales not as frequently, I think, as they do um, in Western uh, European folklore, but they do show up. Um, but I just I wanted to have I decided okay, I will take this idea of the Zahak the dragon and look at some different depictions of it. If you look at at certain images from the Shanama or other parts where, where dragons show up, the dragons in a lot of Persian and Arabic folklore have almost a more Eastern appearance. So I wanted to kind of pull in something from that rather than the Western ideas. But I also thought I, I wanted to kind of have my own spin on it. So if I've made all these magical creatures are from different elements and the Zahak are from the element of air, that they would move like that, that it would almost seem like a, like a mirage of, of they were moving like, like clouds or like vapor. So I really wanted to pull in something that felt like that. Um, but a lot of that was just my own idea of like, how can I make dragons cool in my story? And, and going from that with the, the different wings and the metallic appearance. And I know you weren't inspired by it because we talk about Twitter, but I saw four winged dragons that they were trying to ride. And I immediately jumped to the movie Avatar when our main character <laughs> has to try to tame, ta- ta- tame one of these things. And then later bases off against the big one. So when you had a larger Zahak show up, it's like, oh my God, no, <laughs> she didn't specifically take from Avatar, but that's what my brain is going to, even if it's a false connection. I didn't even think of that. Cause I feel like Avatar, it's like this more important sacred ceremony. Whereas when I wrote it, I really just wanted to be like, these are young men being young and stupid. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> like, stupid. You know, you could ex- like, you could see the same scene of like, you know, of, of, of un- like humans doing something, something very similar but they're gin so they're not gonna you know be you know doing wheelies down the highway they're going to be jumping on the back of dragons and 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 doing that kind of thing but it's very much it was not meant to be in any way like this is the the moment ali like bonds with a dragon it's more oh wow he's loosened up a bit it was a very evocative scene it amused me very much thank you (laughs) that's a great way to get a look at the landscape that's yes it is a very good device for that as well it was very very cool okay so we're about at the end of our time sadly sadly and tragically we can't stay in the magical city of the forever but where can readers and fans meet you in the real world and the virtual world this year so my website is sachakraborty.com and that has my event schedule and all book information. I'm on Twitter quite frequently at sachakrabooks um, and I am going to be touring a little bit in the Northeast and then I will be at BossCon um, for people who are going to be at Boston and at C2E2. But you can find all the details on my website. That's excellent. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about Kingdom of Copper. And it's now out in all good bookstores, electronic, virtual, and otherwise. So readers should go and grab it after reading City of Brass. Thank you. And thank you for everyone for listening. And with that awkward ending, stay frosty and seeing. If 
you would like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or find us on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, our webpage skiffyandfanty.com, or you can even send us an email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. The intro music for this podcast was taken from Rock Thing by Creo. You can find out more about their music on freemusicarchive.org.